welcome. I'm Jean Parker, and you're listening to Discovering How, a podcast of the Ethical Business Building the Future organization. We're a global learning community using our workplaces to build a better future. Today, we're discovering more about design processes for enacting social and organizational transformation. Stephanie Akayo Hughes utilizes her work as an architect to promote a variety of ongoing adaptable human interactions. But first, Elena Herkberger is a PhD researcher at the University of Bristol in the UK. Her work focuses on perception of difference, contributing to a larger question of how society can organize itself to embrace ongoing encounters with difference. She says an organization or individual doesn't gain self-knowledge only through self-introspection. Rather, our greatest self-knowledge comes from deliberately interacting with those who are different than we are in some way. She also believes that goals like justice and diversity must be redefined as we progress, and their achievement is never fully completed. An individual or an organization can better understand his, her, their purpose by engaging by being in ongoing dialogue with the other, the different, by exposing yourself to, to the other and uh, by, by being in, in a dialogue with, uh, with this difference, you inevitably renegotiate your own identity and you inevitably go back to yourself and you understand better yourself with every new encounter with, with difference. What do you observe when you look at people interacting? People are afraid of um, ambiguity, complexity, and uh, something that is unknown. And um, they pretty much afraid of uh, stepping outside of their comfort zone. And therefore, probably we have this uh, tendency to return home, uh, meaning to create something that would be peaceful, just, white and fluffy. However, life, uh, if, you, if you think about it, life, it's not it's absolutely not like this. Life is great because it has all the different sides. You can learn so much by exposing yourself to this unknown. It's actually, it can be quite exciting. In EBBF and in a lot of groups that are concerned with ethics and values in business, we talk a lot about business contributing to the common good. So how does that relate to this idea of the politics of the common good? Because what is common good? What is, what is good for one could be bad for another person. And what is good for one part of society will not necessarily be uh, as good for another part of society. So contributing for me means being part of this um, ongoing conversation involving various different social stakeholders and um, contributing by, uh, by your opinion to, uh, to this conversation, but also listening to, uh, to others. Because it is not about uh, defining, which I think a lot of conversations um, are obsessed about. It's about pinning down what is, what is our common good and then developing a plan uh, to to help us achieve this common good. On the contrary, I think it should be an ongoing conversation about and an negotiations about uh, understanding um, what, what the is, common good is. Really, yes. Would it be fair to say that your perception of common good 
might be different than my perception of common good. And so if we don't get that straightened out, we can't really contribute to the common good in the best way. Um, absolutely. And, and what more I think is that my understanding of uh, what is common good or what is good and your understanding of what is good will be different uh, maybe in two months from now, mm. in, in two years, mm. because we will be different. It's about um, allowing yourself to understand, yeah, you, you look at it from your point of view, but your point of view does not mean the truth or the, the only point of view. And um, I guess it's about understanding that uh, there are many, many, many different points of view. And actually, together, they might, they might uh, start uh, moving you closer to what is right. Following this thinking, uh, you could say that the whole process could be a discomfort with yourself and, and kind of finding ways of having this discomfort or having this internal conflict that can be constructive. Stephanie Akayo Hughes is an architect in Amsterdam. She practices architecture in a way that promotes social transformation by deliberately creating incompleteness impermanence and imperfection to invite collaborative participation of people. The design process she uses can be adapted to create anything transformative. What is it about the way you grew up that helped you conceptualize these ideas? Uh, I grew up in, uh, in Lebanon, in Beirut, uh, during the war uh, years. So uh, there was a lot, um, it was an unusual way to grow up in a sense. Um, I think the most interesting part of that for me was um, the way people uh, appropriated space, um, private spaces, public spaces, uh, spaces in between. Um, we had, you know, we had a civil war and the city was literally uh, divided in two areas, in two halves. Um, then there is the crossing of the of the zone in the middle, uh, but then there is also this notion of um, what's public, what's private. So for a long time there was actually no government. So that also means that public space is up for grabs in a sense. Um, so you see a lot of uh, dynamics happening in the public space that are uh, privatized by people simply as as s things as small as putting uh, a chair on the sidewalk. And that changes the whole dynamic of the street. And I was able to actually observe a lot of that as a child. Um, and I think it's only until years later that I can, um, I can rationalize it. Uh, but I think I was always fascinated by this notion of uh, people and space and all of the different uh, variations that come. So it really comes down to the equation of uh, people and space. It was really uh, created uh, as a process to take any thought or uh, idea or issue from an issue into uh, creating a vision for that issue and then implementing that vision and then being able to adapt and, um, and, and kind of optimize that, uh, that solution or that idea um, for times to come when things change. And what are the attributes of that process? This process is a collaborative process in the sense that we need the active participation of a number of different parties. That includes uh, us as architects uh, or designers, but also other uh, expertises, other disciplines, as well as most importantly, the end users themselves. 
Um, and when this process is applied to a non-architectural and not even a design uh, industry, um, for example, a manager in an office uh, can use this process to understand the issues of his team and uh, come up with a vision on how this can be different and then in, go into the implementation of that. Um, the idea is that th then for him, he needs absolutely the, the participation of his team. So it's, that's, uh, that's one of the main attributes of that, of that process. Uh, the other two attributes that are kind of the, that make the top three is that the fact that this process starts before any uh, design component per se. The, the, the first phase of that process is really to talk about uh, understanding the issue and understanding uh, the problems and the questions behind the questions. Uh, and then the last uh, phase of the process constitutes the third attribute, and this is where it's a completely adapting phase that only happens after uh, in our case, we would say the space or the building is done and it's being used and then we go into a last phase so we don't stop there. And that adapting um, attribute is very important to create a resilient um, situation or a resilient system. The last phase of the process, once uh, we're going through this adapting, actually creates a renewed uh, understanding in our minds but also in the minds of the users so it, it actually goes back to the first phase of the process in a sense so it is definitely an iterative cyclical uh, process and um, our belief behind that is that uh, actually nothing is permanent uh, or static mm -hmm. uh, even when it is it can only be so for a very short limited uh, amount of time and then things change and for us uh, when we talk about space specifically a space is made by definition to be static. A building is made to be permanent and rigid and solid uh, in a sense. And uh, the, the paradox in that is that space also needs to be able to adapt and support people as things change um, almost every day. You mentioned before about impermanence. What does that have to do with it? We, when we go through this process, we have three qualities in mind. Um, impermanence, imperfection, and incompleteness. And the idea is not to be obsessed with making things complete, uh, permanent, and perfect, um, but instead accepting the fact that uh, things need to be incomplete, impermanent, and imperfect. So I'll give you an example. Um, when we talk about uh, the incompleteness, it's this idea that when we create something as the so-called experts being the architects, um, if we create something incomplete, that gap, that part that is not completed by us is actually the invitation to the users to give their input. So we create gaps and open um, spaces in things, um, not literally, sometimes literally, sometimes not, sometimes in the design, sometimes in the ideas. But the, f the, the point is that if we give everything that is complete, you're not inviting people to um, to close the gap in a sense. So imagine a circle that has a piece of it missing. The eye automatically longs to close that gap. Uh, so we see it as a circle, we don't see it as an arc. Um, so that's really the, the, first, uh, the first quality. The second one, uh, the quality of impermanence, is to simply accept the reality that things are not permanent and things move and things change. And there's actually, uh, that's not a, um, uh, a challenge or um, a kind of disadvantage that's actually an opportunity to use that impermanence to collect the insights 
of uh, users and of other experts and, and incorporate that into the, the design. So the, the process in itself is very impermanent and we embrace that impermanence because there's value there. Um, that even though we have made a decision regarding design, let's say at some point in the process, that decision can be, um, is not looked at as a permanent final thing and can at any moment be upgraded and reconsidered for the, for the, for the good of the project in a sense. Um, the challenge there is, of course, as human beings, we're not trained to embrace uncertainty and impermanence. Yeah, it's a little counterintuitive, isn't it? There's <laughs> a lot of people, no, we want, we want things yeah. not to change. <laughs> exactly, absolutely. I mean, we tell clients that we're going to design a space that is incomplete, impermanent and imperfect for them. And uh, I'm surprised they still hire us. <laughs> <laughs> so talk about this, this idea of incomplete. Yeah, it's, it's really, you know, we also say that when, even when things are finished and you move into this new building, uh, you will find it incomplete. And that's a good thing um, because that still gives us room to adapt based on use. Because up to that moment in the process, uh, we've been uh, talking mm -hmm. with people and observing them. Uh, however, language has its limitation, communication has its limitations, um, and even observing people in a different environment will give you different insights. So once they actually move into the final uh, building or the new space for them, and we observe them in that environment, uh, there are new insights that come out. And, and it's very good that there is still room to incorporate those, because if we had made things very rigid up to that point and delivered a final, complete, finished, permanent uh, product, which is a space in our case, then there's no room for adapting after that. And then it's considered a, a mistake or there's no budget left for it or there's no time. And for us, we look at all of this as an incorporated thing. And this is where the last phase comes in. So often I get the question, well, this last phase isn't going to delay everything. So it's longer and more expensive uh, because you keep working after people move in. And I say, that's not the case. We don't keep working after people move in. People move in before we finish working. <laughs> and ah. it's really this idea that this has to be, uh, it has to be an incorporated part of the process. It's not an add-on. The whole process is not, the whole quality of the process drops if that phase is not done. And the last quality is that of imperfection. And this is normally the one that people struggle the most with. And in, with imperfection, we talk about the human aesthetics. So we're in this era where everything has to be uh, perfect and, you know, sharp edges and shiny materials. And it's this kind of almost sterile design. If you look at any design magazine, uh, it's very, very common to see no people at all in the spaces. And if you see some human beings, they're always actually uh, young, beautiful, perfect, and nothing is out of place. That's not the reality of things. And that's also not what we can expect of people when they start using the spaces we've created for them. So for us, we need to embrace that humanity, uh, but also the humanity of even non-human things, um, like a, a path. Uh, in a forest, uh, the tree trunk that's never straight. You know, I, I may sound poetic, but these things make the space really support people's interactions and not impose on them uh, um, living in a sterile, straight, perfect box. Uh, you've mentioned before about architecting interaction. Tell me what that means. Well, very simply, it's really for us using architecture as a way to support and foster interactions. 
we ran a, a masterclass training for uh, individuals. So there are uh, people that came to us from around the world, uh, fresh graduates, uh, young professionals, uh, mid-level professionals. And what, uh, what we did uh, with them for a week is guide them through this process with uh, basically three goals. The three goals of that training were first to help them figure out what their vision is. And that is uh, the two first phases of the process. The first one being understanding themselves and understanding the world around them. And the second one being um, actually being able to formulate what their vision for the world is. So in other words, what are the things that they need to do and the actions that they need to take to make sure that this vision becomes reality? And of course, it's a long-term thing. Then we also help them to, first of all, accept the fact that uh, the plan will not go according to plan. And then we, we kind of equipped them with uh, tips and tools and uh, ways of thinking and uh, concrete uh, kind of going around uh, actions to be able to say, when the plan doesn't go according to plan, here are things I can do to do something else. So if I try something and it doesn't work, then I can do something else. And this is really the adapting phase. Um, so we, we use this process uh, on an individual level to help an individual person um, figure out what they want uh, for themselves or for the world or both and how to make it happen. It's, you know, things do change and if that's a good thing and then we need to be able to just adapt to it and, and be resilient to it or just incorporate it. And that is really the, the first challenge of all of this is the mentality. Thank you for joining us. We hope today's program has inspired you, our listeners, with ideas for discovering how we can all build a prosperous, just, and sustainable civilization. This has been Ethical Business Building the Future, Discovering How. Get more from this podcast by sharing your comments, an article, or a link to something that's important to you. You can contact us on our website, www.ebbf.org. I'm Jean Parker for EBBF, and I thank you for listening.